I've listened to The Stranger by Billy Joel dozens of times. And I've listened to it once last night. Welcome to Spin It. Hello and welcome back to Spin It, the podcast for people who would rather be listening to music. Once again, I'm your host, James, and with me, as always, is Connor. Say hello to the people one more time. Hello, people, one more time. This is the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music. And this week we're coming at you with a really, really great album. I think pretty much on every front. It's The Stranger by Billy Joel. A true classic. It's our first official episode, too. Yes, it is the first official episode. All you fans out there, the millions of fans we already have, you all already, you know, listened to the test episode. You loved it. You were clamoring for more. Well, this is the more. This is the more, and it's the first episode. Not to be confused with that's a more. That's a song. It's very popular. It's Italian. That's Italian. And we're going to talk a little bit about Italian restaurants soon. I made a music reference. I made my one music reference for the the episode, so uh, the rest of it's on you. Good luck. If you're only making one music reference in a podcast about making music references, we're going to be in for a long show. I didn't say I was only going to make one, just that that was my one required. Your one good one. One, you know, I got the I, yeah, I got my one good one out of the way. Okay. Honestly, that's about all I can expect to get from you, I think, is one solid reference each episode. True. <laughs> but for those of you who are unfamiliar with us, Spin It is a podcast where we take an album that I have heard a million times that I, I know and love really well, and I kind of present it to Connor, who is listening to things usually in their entirety for the first time, and we kind of have a back and forth about that and give our different spins <laughs> on what we've just heard so that's kind of why we called it spin it we put our spin on the album and kind of give it to you i listened to the album for the first time in its entirety last night i'll give my amateur take on it alongside james's more professional one not quite more professional is fine but we should add the qualifier that it's not fully professional no i no. only know a little bit about what i'm talking about <laughs> juxtaposed that's gonna be my word of the day juxtaposed to my zero professionality you sound like an all-star so right it's kind of the, the the dream team perfect combination or at least we hope that's how it comes across if it's not it's how you better have it come across now listeners hey don't tell the <laughs> audience what to think sorry i'm already threatening the audience i'm already threatening the audience i'm sorry let's talk about <laughs> mr william joel if we will willie joel okay billy joel the Piano Man. He's the Piano Man. He has been kind of out of the new music game for a while, but his big active years were from 1971 to 1993. That's when he released all of his music. And this album, The Stranger, is kind of right in the center of that. It was a 1977 record. Couple facts about Billy Joel for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop some knowledge. Billy Joel dropped some knowledge when he dropped out of high school to pursue a music career. Turns out that was a really smart decision. He uh, apparently joined two bands before he started his own solo career with his first album in 1971, Cold Spring Harbor. Did you know that? Did you learn that? Oh, yeah, I knew that. Okay. As opposed to in our test episode where I had never heard a single Kings of Leon song, I'm quite the Billy Joel fan. Mm -hmm. I know a lot about Billy Joel. I listen to a lot of Billy Joel music in my, you know, music listening time. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Uh, I've lost all train of thought. Your music listening time <laughs> when you listen to music is when you listen to Billy Joel. So yeah, you know, that would have been a way better way to phrase that. That's about how you phrased <laughs> it. So that's interesting. So you're not 
totally ignorant about Billy Joel. Yeah, but I I have never listened to this album as a whole. So I've heard all the songs, but this is my first time hearing the songs in the order Mr. Joel himself wanted them to be heard in. Right. So you're kind of getting all these songs that you knew in a different sense. And this is the first time you're looking at them as like a complete package. So, Billy Joel, back to him. He is a piano-driven rock-pop guy. That's his wheelhouse. That's his bread and butter. But you do kind of see him experiment with a lot of different styles throughout his career. You know, some of his albums are way more rock and roll. Some of them are almost 1950s doo-wop style. You know, they he gets around. He tries a little bit of everything, and sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work as well. But it works well enough for some awards. Billy Joel has got 23 Grammy nominations and five Grammy wins under his belt, and he was on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Site Selection Committee in 1986. He was the tie-breaking vote to have it built in Cleveland, Ohio, which it was news to me for this podcast. I didn't know that. I didn't know that fact either. That was one I found during my research. I knew he was on the committee. I did not know he was the tie-breaking vote. Yeah, and not only was he on the committee that built the museum in 1986, he got inducted into the Hall of Fame himself in 1999. So he is a pretty iconic rocker. Odds are that most of you who are listening to this already knew one or a couple Billy Joel songs, at least Piano Man and We Didn't Start the Fire. Neither of which are on this album. No, that's (laughs) right. Neither of them are. But this album has a lot of other great songs that might be pretty widely familiar to people. But let's talk about The Stranger specifically for a little bit. That's Billy Joel's fifth album, right? Like we said, 1977. So only six years into his career and already onto his fifth album. It comes right in between Turnstiles and 52nd Street. I think this was a real, it feels like a real turning point in his musical style, this album. The Stranger is pretty much Billy Joel's critical and commercial breakthrough. It spent six weeks at number two on the U.S. Billboard 200, and it won the record of the year in 1978. So that is no small feat. Four singles from The Stranger actually made it to the top 40 hits on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, and those four singles are Just the Way You Are, Moving Out, She's Always a Woman, and Only the Good Die Young. So those are your top four singles that that were on the Billboard charts. And The Stranger was named one of the top 500 albums of all time by Rolling Stone. Not only does Billy Joel himself have a Grammy award-winning Rock and Roll Hall of Fame career, this album is pretty widely regarded critically as a real good work here. It's his best-selling non-compilation album to date. So I think you're 100% right when you say it's his critical breakthrough, you know? Right. That's part of the reason I picked it, honestly, is because it's that coming into his own as a musician. You know, his later stuff, he's kind of more established because he's got this under his belt. This one just felt like the right decision to talk about. Mm -hmm. So with all our artist and album background information out of the way, we're going to move on to what's quickly becoming one of my favorite parts of the show. We decided to give it an official name before we didn't really have a name for it. We decided we're going to call it Fact or Spin. That's the intro music for it. Careful what you wish for, (laughs) because I can make that the intro music for it every single time we do it if you want. Oh, (laughs) no. You really hyped it up, so I felt the need to give it a nice intro song there. And I regret it immediately. No, it's hyped up. It's hyped up now. We're going to have a good old time. Connor, tell all of our listeners what Factor Spin is. Factor Spin. So since James was doing most of the heavy lifting with the listening to the albums for a month, you know, I I felt the need to spend my time doing something. So I looked up a ton of facts about the album, about Billy Joel himself. 
And then I also spent a considerable amount of time just making up facts that I thought were funny or sounded interesting. And I'm going to mix some of those up, give them to James, and he's going to have to tell me if it's one I made up or if it's an actual fact about Billy Joel or the album. I'm going to just give like a brief sentence description. James, it's on you to ask the questions you want answers to to figure out if this is a true fact or not. Mm -hmm. Last time you started giving me a lot of unsolicited information. I'm going to try my best to hold it back this time. I almost feel like I need like an alter ego. I need to go into like game show host mode. Like the, okay, here we go. The mixtape. He'll make his return. That was the nickname from the test episode that I gave myself. I shall only refer to myself as the mixtaper during Factor Spin. That's what I'm going to do from now on. Right. I'm going to talk about myself in the third person. So get ready for that. No, I don't. <laughs> I'll get ready for it as as ready as I can be. You know, let's just jump into some facts. Mr. The Mixtaper, present me with your first Mr. Mixtaper? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Now it just sounds like you're trying to do a weird parody of Mr. Sandman. Uh, see, look, that's now two song references in one episode. I'm working overtime. Oh, my gosh. I'm not paying you overtime. <laughs> well, all of our money is going to the writing department anyway, so you're not paying anything. I, that's a good point. I don't have the budget to pay you. So my first fact. Here we go. Let's just jump into a wild one. Billy Joel was once offered a pet koala bear while on tour. That's probably the best kind of bear that one could be offered, I think. I would argue maybe Teddy Bear could be high on that list, but... Okay. See, there are a lot of bears that you could offer me that I would immediately say no to, but a koala bear is one that I would actually have to consider. (laughs) It sleeps a lot, and it only eats eucalyptus. It's not like the other bears that might get aggressive or whatever. Okay, he was offered a koala bear on tour. Was he offered this koala bear in Australia? Oh, you absolutely know he was. In fact, when he went on tour in Australia in 1987 is when he was offered this koala bear. Okay, okay, that's late in his career. Who offered him the bear? Was it a fan? Was it like a a zoo for some reason? That doesn't seem like something a zoo would do. Who (laughs) offered him the koala bear? Where did it come from? A backstage worker, the worker approached him for an autograph. He mentioned that his wife worked for a wildlife rehabilitation center. Wildlife rehabilitation center. So he wanted to offer Billy Joel a koala from rehab. What was this koala rehabilitating from? (laughs) In the interview, Billy Joel didn't say. Oh, right. HIPAA violations and all that. Oh, you know, that's an excellent question that I didn't ask. Did he take the koala bear? He did not. I think we all would have known if Billy Joel had a pet koala bear. No, that's true. I got one other little nugget of information, a little nugget of tease for you. The, the guy even offered Billy Joel nicknames. He basically told him, you can make him your little mascot and you can name him Billy Joey, the piano bear. The piano bear. Oh, that's funny. And the Joey thing, it's a marsupial. Yeah, okay. I think I'm going to lock in... That you've spun this because I can't wrap my head around like if I were working backstage somewhere and like I I had the opportunity to interact with a a performing artist. I don't know if I'd even offer them the koala bear if that was a thing I had the opportunity to offer. Yeah, Mm because like, wait, wait, I'm locking in that you spun it. And I'd also like to say that's not his koala bear to give away. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This is my wife's jobs koala bear. Would you mind taking it off of our hands? There's a lot of weird people out there, but you're locking in that I've spun this? This has to be fake. Tell me this is fake. This fact is indeed fake. It is spun. I made it up. Thank goodness. It is not real, but I really wish it was. I think that has to be a true offer that someone's made to someone at some point. So we just have to do an episode about that person and then you can reuse this, but it'll be true. Yeah, we just got to find that person. All you listeners out there, if you've ever offered a koala bear to a famous singer, let me know. Or if you haven't, do it and then let us know. 
So you got it. You got that one. Good job. I, I really thought I might have had you there for a minute, though. I was 50-50 for a while. I was on the fence. I gave you too much time. You got to really think about it. Let's move on to the next one, and it's that Billy Joel used to be a boxer. Oh, I hate this fact already, because what we're about to talk about in the album cover <laughs> is that there are boxing gloves on the wall in this in this picture that's on the cover of this very record. And they confused me when I was looking at it. I was like, why? And this fact would make that all make sense. <laughs> it is indeed supposed to be a reference to his time as a boxer. <sighs> Got any questions for me? Yes, I do. Billy Joel, as we've established, he was a high school dropout yep. to pursue his music career. Mm -hmm. When did he take up boxing in that window? Was it after he dropped out of high school? Like, was he hoping to do it if music didn't work out? He actually did it as an income, I think, uh, alongside his music career as he was kind of trying to get it off the ground. How much income did he expect or did he make through boxing? I don't have a number, but I do have that he was pretty darn good. He won his first 22 bouts in a row. Oh, his very first 22? Yep, won the first 22. That's impressive. He was in an amateur league, the same amateur league that famous boxers like Mickey Rourke, Buddy McGirt, and Mike Tyson first started in. So you're telling me that Billy Joel was in Mike Tyson's boxing league? That's the fact here? Uh, not necessarily at the same time. Not but, at the same you know, time. Yeah. I don't think Billy Joel was boxing Mike Tyson, <laughs> but... They were in the same league, yes. Oh, uh, he seems like a pretty scrappy kid. I don't know. He's not built like a boxer, as far as I know. <laughs> when did he stop boxing? Okay, his first album came out in 1971. At what point did he say, I'm quitting boxing and doing music? He stopped shortly after his first 22 bouts in a row win streak because he got his nose broken. Okay, okay, okay. I think plenty of boxers get their noses broken and decide to keep boxing. It's true. I think this one... You know what? I'm going to take a gamble on this because there's the stupid, you might just have had me from the start with the boxing gloves <laughs> on the album cover, but that makes sense if we're talking about different personalities and sides of you that the rest of the world doesn't know. I'm going to have to say that, yes, I think it's potentially true that he was a boxer in his youth. So you're locking in back? Lock me in, mixtaper. All right. Well, let me consult the records here, and it is indeed a true fact. Yay! Wow. Yeah, he first learned boxing as a kid to protect himself because he was constantly bullied in school. It also, he references his boxing career in the song, We Didn't Start the Fire. He throws in several famous boxers, specifically as a reference to the time he was a boxer. Boxers that like he looked up to. He goes Rosenberg's H-bomb, Sugar, Ray, Sugar yeah. Ray, which is a boxer. And he keeps going. And then he eventually says, England's got a new queen. Mars Mar I, I'm, I'm not going to try to pronounce these boxers' names. Marciano, maybe? I don't know boxers. Right. But he mentions one there. And then he also mentions Liston Beats yep. Patterson in the song. Yep. Okay. Uh, and that's exactly what those boxing gloves and the cover art are there for, is to reference his time as a boxer. I'm doing so much better the second time around. The, the test episode? Maybe, you know, maybe I'm just not coming up with as good a lies. My next one is Billy Joel puts in his contracts that the venue must provide a bowl of Skittles with all the green ones removed in his dressing room. Oh, he's one of those guys with a really persnickety rider, isn't he? A bowl of Skittles with the green ones removed. How big does the bowl have to be? I, he didn't say. I assume probably not that big. I mean, who wants to eat that many Skittles, right? I don't know. It's, actually, he doesn't have a problem with the green ones. He has them leave the green ones out for a specific reason. Do they remind him of one of his several ex-wives? <laughs> 
Oh, the, the green M&Ms. They were her favorite. Uh, no. <laughs> it's to test the venue's ability to follow directions. If he shows up and this bowl of Skittles isn't there or the green ones are in there, he knows to expect more critical items that were on the list to potentially be missing. Because they can follow something as simple as a bowl of Skittles. Okay. I'm glad you said that because I was just thinking, what does he care what their dedication is? Like, <laughs> he's going to perform at Madison Square Garden regardless of whether they give him the right Skittles or not. But that makes sense to know whether to expect other things to go wrong. Right, right. Of course, I'm sure it's two totally different people that provide him with critical items and who eat the Skittles he doesn't want. That's like the intern's job, isn't it? To eat Billy Joel's <laughs> green Skittles? He does admit it's more of a superstitious thing than like solid fact, right? It's just something he started when he was younger and still continues to do to this day. Okay, this is another one that I'm going to lock in as true because I want to believe this. Locking in true? This fact is false. I made it up. Oh, shoot. Womp, womp, oh, womp. That was, uh, <laughs> you're giving me all of the sound effects for future episodes today. <laughs> if I had to go out on a fact, if I had to break my perfect streak for the episode, I'm glad that's the one that did me in. Yeah, I, I do have one more if you're interested in it. I had a lot of them for Billy Joel. Well, we might as well do one more. Billy Joel went to war with the Catholic Church. His exact phrasing. It's plausible because look at only the good die young. That's exactly what it's about. It seems like Billy Joel has a little beef with the Catholic Church. <laughs> did he initiate this war, or did the Catholic Church initiate the war against him? The Catholic Church initiated it against him. A New Jersey Catholic University got the song banned from the local radio station, which then led to a bunch of other bands all over the place. I do know that Only the Good Die Young caught a lot of flack for its content from religious groups, and I know it did get some radio bands. In in fact, the song was doing very poorly on the charts until the band went in place. And then people were like, oh, this is banned. Now I have to hear it. And it skyrocketed the number of listens. All you have to do to get people to be into something is tell them they can't or shouldn't do it. And then they'll jump all over it. The original university actually had a student-led protest where they played it all over the school. I guess that's an effective way to protest it. Now, does Billy Joel consider himself as winning this war against the Catholic Church? I think he does because he wrote the person who was in charge of getting the ban in place a letter asking them to ban his next record as well. That's pretty rough. So I think he considers himself a victor there. He's Billy Joel. Obviously, he's won any war that he's fought. <laughs> yeah, I think this is true. That makes a lot of sense. I totally understand why the Catholic Church would be a, a bit incensed about only the good die young. Stick around and find out for yourself. But I think this is true. You're going with true again. Yep. This fact is indeed true. He doesn't get why the Catholic Church banned it because, as he points out, the woman in question chooses to remain abstinent by the end of the song. She never gives in. So, if anything, he considers it a, a win for the Catholic Church. Yeah, it's a testament to the Catholic Church's teaching. So he doesn't get why they were so upset. There are some lines in there that eh, the church might be upset about. <laughs> but all right, that's the last fact then. I think I did much better this time. That is fact or spin. The mixtape. I think took the L on this one. Well, that's okay. 
back to the drawing board to come up with more convincing lies for next week. There's always next time. Exactly. Uh, hey, but good job. You know, yeah, I was. Kinda, it's weird because like I want you to fail, but at the same time, I'm rooting for you as like I hear you pick up on things. I'm like, oh, he, he picked up on it. That's exactly why you need the alter ego to keep that balance in check. Yeah. The alter ego of the mixtaper allows me to root for you and root against you at the same time. Connor is rooting for you, but the mixtaper wants your ultimate demise. Whatever you need to do, buddy. I liked the mixtaper before, and now I'm not so sure. <laughs> Did you? He might be a C-list <laughs> villain, but he gets an F from me. Wow. So let's talk about The Stranger. Let's take a minute, first of all, and say, if you haven't listened to The Stranger yet, and if you want context for all the stuff we're about to talk about, do yourself a favor and hit pause on this, listen to that record, and come back. And then you'll know everything that we're about to say, maybe before we even say it. It's true. For those of you that did leave just now, welcome welcome back. back. Yeah, welcome back. How was it? It's like a 42-minute album, so yeah, you were gone for a little bit. For those of you that didn't leave, thanks for sticking around. Welcome back, too. So let's talk about The Stranger's album cover. It's an interesting one. Yeah, it is. Not as interesting as Walls that we talked about on our test episode, but there's kind of a lot to unpack here. It's more interesting in a metaphorical way. Walls, we looked at it and we were like, what the heck is going on? We spent a lot of time just trying to figure out what it was. Yeah. With this one, it's pretty self-explanatory, but there's a lot of deep meaning to it if you really stop and think about it in my opinion Mm -hmm. for those of you who aren't looking at it or forgot need the refresher the cover of the stranger is totally black and white it it has a really cool use of shadow i think because there's a a light source somewhere in the top left that makes this really long shadow behind everything and we've got 27 year old billy joel with his big 77 hair and he's barefoot in a suit sitting on like a twin bed and he's looking very forlorn like sad at this opera type mask that's on the pillow. Yeah, I thought he was looking at it longingly. That's a good word. I couldn't quite pinpoint what his face is saying, but longing, I like. Yeah. And like we mentioned earlier, he's got boxing gloves on the wall. And the mask that's on this pillow next to him, it's got these really, like, hollow eyes. Mm-hmm. There's kind of black holes where the eyes, where your eyes would go if you're wearing the mask. But <laughs> it's just kind of a little weird to look at. Yeah, nothing on the cover is there by accident. It's all methodically planned out, I think. Doing it in black and white fits that noir feel that the whistle to the stranger itself has. Yeah, it feels like you're walking down a New York City street at night. I think that's influencing the black and white choice. Yeah, I think it's a bold choice. It kind of gives the album the serious overtone, which is a cool effect. Yeah, yeah. There's the mask, right? Which, again, a direct reference to The Stranger, the mask that you try on. But the fact that they're on the bed, I think, is supposed to be symbolic. The mask in the cover art is supposed to represent his lover. What's notable about the bed is the size of it. It's just a twin bed. It's not a two-person bed, which I think makes that metaphor that little sneaky allusion to having a the lack of a lover next to him maybe they're cheap maybe they're cheap maybe he billy joel just didn't want to shell out for a full-size bed to make this album cover (laughs) his boxing career didn't take off quite enough so he's just in the twin bed if he had been you know a mike tyson maybe we could have got the queen size I want to touch on the boxing gloves again. You mentioned them, and we already talked about how they're a reference to his boxing career. But I also think they're a reference in terms of the album to taking chances between moving out and Vienna. There's a lot of things about taking chances and going with the flow. And I think that that's why he chose to put the reference in The Stranger, because that was something he did for a while before moving on to find success as a singer. Yeah, that's true. Looking at the suit... 
you pointed out that he's barefoot in the suit on the bed, right? Mm -hmm. And a suit isn't necessarily something you wear to bed. And so I think him being in the suit, it could be very symbolic of the hardworking, busy life theme from moving out and stuff where you always have to be ready to go. You don't have a moment to rest. Right. That's a really good take. I think everything in the album art is 100% there on purpose and done for a reason. Yeah, it feels like taken as a collective whole, it fits all nine songs very well. It's a very good choice. Yep. So speaking of all nine songs, we should talk about them because that's why you're here and it's why we're here. We're going to do things a little differently than we did in our test episode. Instead of breaking the album down by music and then by lyrics, we're going to go song by song, which hopefully keeps things a little more streamlined and easy to follow and hopefully makes things better. So let's start with track number one, Moving Out, parentheses, Anthony's Song. song. What'd you think about this? Great opening track. What a way to start an album with the punchiness of Moving Out. Oh, my very first note is that it doesn't waste any time getting started. Yeah, no, it does not. It's nice and bouncy. It's You can bounce along to it. The lyrics are all very staccato a lot. If you do too much staccato, it can sound too like harsh. This is not that case. Well, he only does it, you know, at the beginning of his phrases. He does a little bit like Anthony works and he holds out works and grocery store has a little bit of a more drawn out feel to it. Right, right. It's the punch of the music and the lyrics together that make that really nice. Yep. The other thing that I liked about it is that it starts off with two minor chords in a row. It's a D minor and then a G minor seventh, and then it moves to a C. But a minor chord, right, it often creates this kind of this melancholy feeling that is a little overbearing and kind of sad, but then it moves to a major chord, which gives it this underlying hopeful feeling. Yeah, which exactly fits the theme. Yeah, I said that it feels like it epitomizes the characters' situations. They're bleak and they're difficult and kind of living in this constant struggle, but there's that pervasive hope and a dream that's driving them all the time. Mm -hmm. We start off the first verse with the story of Anthony and Mama Leone. Mm -hmm. I love how Billy Joel throws us headfirst into this really vivid setting right away. He feeds you these little details that do big things for our impression of the song. For example, Anthony works at the grocery store. It's the first line, but it tells us right away that Anthony is not in this glamorous or necessarily super skilled position. He's just a blue collar guy working in the grocery store, saving his pennies for someday instead of like saving his dollars pennies yeah it's such a little change but just to make it on a smaller scale like that really gives you a pretty clear sense of the struggle that he's going through on a daily basis here's a question for you you know why it's called anthony's song in parentheses by all means tell me the names he chose for his characters in this song is specifically because he wanted to highlight the lower working class of new york but he wanted the lower working class immigrants Mm -hmm. specifically irish and italian immigrants which is why it's anthony and O'Neilly to really highlight the fact that they're meant to represent immigrants. Yeah, again, that's just another one of those little details that is so easy to let slip by, but just gives you so much depth to the story without even a thought. So we go through this story of Anthony and Mama Leone telling him, take a break, move out to the country because this lifestyle is going to do you in early. And that chorus is such a refreshing musical change. You know, we go from the bouncy pluckiness of the beginning almost to like halftime. Remember I talked about the two minor chords that he does at the beginning of the verse? That chorus bit changes the second minor chord to a seventh chord, which gives it an extra little bit of uplift. So it makes it sound similar, but also a little off. So it catches your ear funny. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't know chords hardly at all, so when you tell me things like that, yeah, I'm instantly interested. Verse 2, we get this new character, the police officer, O'Leary, working his two jobs. 
And by the way, one of the jobs that he's working is a bartender at Mr. Cacciatore's down on Sullivan Street. That's a real place. Like you said, he does a really good job of vividly describing what the setting is and who the characters are. And I think part of that is because he's able to ground them in real places. Mm-hmm. He's been there himself and like has experienced this. So Mr. Mr. Sergeant. So Sergeant O'Leary. Give him his respect. Right. I know. He went to police academy for what? For me to call him Mr. How disrespectful. Sergeant O'Leary, he trades in his Chevy for a Cadillac, ack, 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 ack. Did you know Billy Joel invented a new kind of car with that lyric? There's no such thing as a Cadillac, ack, 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 ack. There used to just be a Cadillac. <laughs> I do have a note here that the syllable ack may be the grossest syllable in the English language, but yet he finds a way to make it so fun to repeat it over and over. And he finds a way to do it twice in the song. Yeah, well, working too hard can give you a heart attack, ack, ack, ack. It's such a gross syllable. But I love it. And if he can't drive with a broken back, at least he can polish the fenders. I've heard a lot of interpretations of that. My favorite interpretation is that he's given all he's got just to get this car. And even though he's not going to be able to really enjoy it or drive it even, he's going to have this fake enjoyment just to have it as this purposeless status symbol. Interesting. I looked at it as kind of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Sardonic note. Mm -hmm. I looked at it as like a grim, ironic statement. Literally, like, he's working so hard. Because, like, think of the imagery of someone with a broken back, right? When somebody has a broken back, they're usually hunched over, which would put them at perfect polishing fender level. So there's the literal explanation, right? But then there's also the getting down, doing grimy work, right? Even the thing that you bought that you're supposed to be enjoying, you're now having to put more just grueling work into and you're still not having the time to enjoy it. I think it's supposed to kind of be a double hit like that, both literally and figuratively. Yeah. No, I like that take a lot, too. It's pretty open to interpretation, I think, which is a cool feature of it. Yeah, yeah. So he ends the song with, You should never argue with a crazy mind. You ought to know by now. He breaks the fourth wall. Such a fourth wall break. Yes, it's such a fourth wall break. Uh, I, one thing I wanted to point out was, I think it does end on a happy note. I think so, too. When the outro music is playing, the engine revs and the tires screech, which is supposed to imply that the person is indeed moving out. Maybe in a Cadillac ack That's definitely what that car was. It was definitely a Cadillac ack It's realizing that all the grueling work isn't going to pay off the way you think it is. And it's better to enjoy life as it comes to you than work for some unattainable goal. Right. Ditching the boxing gloves for piano keys. With that, we can move smoothly into track number two, the title track, The Stranger. Stranger. I think it was really smart putting it as track number two. Yeah? Why is that? Well, because the whole theme of the song, right, is that there is a side of you that you only look at in private or you keep hidden from the rest of the world. It's almost like he's now come back into private for song number two and he's showing a different side of himself than the upbeat piano plunking star. Yeah, that's a good point because you talk about putting on the facade at the beginning and what I noticed about Anthony's song is that Billy Joel the Piano Man does not feature the piano very prominently there at all. And we peel back that layer, we get into The Stranger, the first thing you hear is the piano. Mm -hmm. It's really uh, kind of a jarring change. But yet it works, like it fits well. It's a, it's a good jar. It's a good jar where we keep the best pickles. <laughs> well, what pickles? All the things that people keep in jars, you went with pickles? Because well, what comes in a jar? Lots of things. How many things? Your jellies, your jams, your pickled eggs. Pickled your... eggs? You're going to get on me for doing a pickle jar, but you're going to say people keep their pickled <laughs> eggs? Pickled eggs. That's what we're going with. Listen, mama keeps the pickled eggs in the good jar. <laughs> uh, I've lost all my train of thought after that. <laughs> It's a good change. Yes, the shift to the slower piano is a nice change. 
And he's so good with the piano. You'll hear me say this time and again on this record, but he uses a lot of really cool inverted chords and funky bass notes to really build this sonic atmosphere of the song. I feel like the song feels, like you said, noir. It's like eerie, but also kind of lighthearted. The noir vibe is very melodic, but then you get into the but-da-da-ba-da-ba-da section, and that, again, now bounces with some staccato lyrics in there. Yeah, and there's some really nice harmony on those guitar solos. And that bass, I, I wrote... Woo! That bass is popping heavily on this one. <laughs> Woo! I know. You should never, ever read my notes because they're really involved. So the song picks up there after that whistling section and he starts singing. And I think unlike Moving Out that is super heavily grounded in reality, this song is full on metaphor the entire time. And I'll be honest, this might be a hot take. I think thematically it's fine. I think it's a pretty astute observation and I'm sure there's a lot of personal experience behind all this. Yep. But I think lyrically, this is a bit of a weaker song. Really? That's interesting. Just... I... Wow, okay. Just lyrically, I think everything feels a little surface level. The things that he explains get over-explained, and the questions that he kind of poses or, like, implies don't always get answered. Yeah, walk me through this. I'm very interested now. I did not expect this take at all. Well, he starts out with, we all fall in love, we never tell our deepest secrets, and everybody does it. He talks about that from the very beginning. It's, like I said, it's over-explained. I think he does the same thing where he does a very good job of setting the scene. Like in that first verse where he goes through all the different types of like faces, right? The satin, steel, silk, leather sure. faces. No, I did put a star by that one. I did say that I love that you get the really quick glance of you could be callous or soft or open, nice, mean, whatever. That bit specifically is really good. But that's one of the only bits where he does something like, yeah. I don't know. I guess what it boils down to is I'm not sure what angle he's taking here. He's kind of just describing the stranger effect rather than saying this is good this is bad it feels lukewarm to me and that's kind of what i don't love about it to me he's again that grim mocking commentary on an effect is what he's going for that's his angle and i think his stance on it is that you have to expect it he's trying to almost just raise awareness of it we disregard the danger the danger is we disregard this idea that the person that we're in love with isn't necessarily who that person is at their core he's saying so then why are you surprised when then later in the relationship that stranger emerges you should have known that this was coming yeah, well, like I said, I think thematically it's fine. Like, you're explaining all this stuff, and thematically it's great. It's fitting for the themes of the album. I just don't know if he conveys it in a way that has me super heck yes. He relies heavily on the metaphor. Yes, that's what it is. So the line, you mentioned it earlier, it's a weird line. The line kicked me right between the eyes. What an interesting attack method for this stranger. <laughs> you're right. Kick me right in the eye. Like, of all the ways to attack someone's eyes, I don't know if kicking is the way I would go. <laughs> That's why he's so caught off guard. As a former boxer, he would not expect to be kicked up there. It's illegal in boxing, right? This isn't a regulation move. Yeah, this is illegal. <laughs> I think that's a common expression. Is it kicked between the eyes? I'd never heard that. More common back then than today. Okay. He does use it here, and it is a, it is a weird attack method for the eyes. And he does this really nice falsetto when he sings, You've Done It, Why Can't Someone Else? It's very light and airy. He really shows off his vocal range, which is kind of poignant in a song about having multiple facades. My last note on this song was that I like that he ends it with the whistle again. It really wraps the song up nicely. I really like the cut and dry structure of this song. It's very to the point. You know, we have an intro verse, chorus, 
Sometimes, like we'll get into in scenes from an Italian restaurant, he stitches so many pieces together and so many different fragments of songs. It's just kind of this Frankenstein bit of musical... Genius. <laughs> yes, genius, but musical occurrences that he puts all together. And I really like that this one is more simple, more conventional. I agree. I agree. But you mentioned his vocal range. I think that that's a good segue into Just The Way You Are, because boy, does he do some cool vocal jumps on Just The Way You Are. It's stunning. It's actually kind of a simple song, again, but he does it just so well. So let's start from the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. (laughs) Was that supposed to be a Sound of Music reference? It was. Yes, you know it was. I said that Just The Way You Are is the dang sweetest song. It's like one of his best love songs, in my opinion. And it's his first ballad on this album, actually. It's a very sweet song. I thought it was an ironic place right after The Stranger, which is a song about not knowing someone's true self, to a song that's all about being in love with someone and liking the person that they are right then and there. I think it's an ironic follow-up to a song where his argument is that you don't know someone's true self. Right. And what's actually really ironic about that is that he wrote this song about an eventual ex. Yep. Yep. He had a hiatus from playing it in concert. Yeah, he did. From 1982 to 2000, a long hiatus. Yep. He got divorced in 1982 and he didn't add the song back into his live shows until the early 2000s. Yeah. And it's not the only song on this album or in his catalog that's had to take a a bit of a relationship break. I love the saxophone. The saxophone in that song. Mwah. Chef's kiss. Musician's kiss. One of my notes is, heck, saxophone. Because it's just so good. (laughs) It was so nice. I love it. That's one of the things I think that works on this whole album is he uses a lot of instruments that you don't necessarily hear all the time in pop music or popular rock music for that matter. Especially today. Yeah. And it still feels new. Yeah, it does. Like 1977 has been a couple years now. Just a a few. What was that? That a couple years back? Were we in high school then? I don't know. Absolutely (laughs) not. This song still feels like it's got a lot of relevance. Like it can still be enjoyed just as much today as back then. I love this song just the way it is oh yeah me too that's so nice (laughs) what i like about that too the simplicity of the title here just the way you are it feels super reassuring where we've had nothing but cynicism and critique to this point Mm -hmm. in the record it is such a breath of fresh air which also is very ironic the breath of fresh air is the one that ends up being about an eventual divorce yeah (laughs) it became cynical (laughs) over time My last note for this song is, geez, this song is four minutes and 50 seconds, but it just flies by. It's so captivating. I think more than any song except maybe Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, this is the one that sweeps you right up and it keeps you there the entire time. Speaking of Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, you want to move into that one? That's There's a lot to talk about on that one. You want to dive in? <laughs> Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, track four. Now, this is the longest song that Billy Joel ever released, clocking in at 7 minutes and 36 seconds. That annoys me. It might annoy you, but actually, that's a pretty efficient song. When you consider, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant was initially three separate song ideas that he had. Was it really? Yeah, that he stitched all together. And as you listen to it, you can pick out the obvious spots where the three songs would have been. Yeah, you know, I literally have written in here that it feels like three separate songs all stitched together. That's one of my notes. That's exactly what it is. (laughs) The first section is the Italian Restaurant, the section that starts with the bottle of white. The second section is the one that picks up with 
with Things Are Okay With Me These Days, the one that's more upbeat and up-tempo has kind of got that drum hit. And then the third bit is the always classic story of Brenda and Eddie and their escapades. So those were the initial three pieces of song that he kind of put together here. The Italian restaurant bit itself is based off of two real-life Italian restaurants that he frequented when he was in New York. It's that same thing that he did with Mr. Cacciatore's where he takes a real spot and just kind of transports us there. He starts in with the accordion with the lyrics that put us straight in the restaurant. White, red, whatever you want. We come here all the time. We have our own table. Accordion. That was another wild choice for instruments. Yeah. The accordion is a heck of a pick. And I think the Italian restaurant as a setting is such a clever way to stitch together those three songs. They're three very different concepts, but to make them come together at this restaurant where it's just people catching up and talking about their lives and their past that they shared. It's Everybody's had a conversation like that before. That was my note too, yeah. The second section replays that conversation that everybody's had when they run into someone that they haven't seen for a long time. Oh, hey, how are you? It's been forever. Oh, you have kids now? Oh, that's that's great. I think it kind of had that same ironic feel to it. It's a formality. It's just pleasantries. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of a throwaway first part of that verse, but very intentionally. So that then the second part where they get into, hey, remember the glory days, that feels all the more weighty because it's how a real conversation between real people would actually progress. Yeah. And I also love that this song tells a story. This song tells a couple of them. And this one successfully tells multiple stories. And so I really enjoy that. That's one of my favorite types of song. And this second section is the one where that story really starts to to take shape. Actually, the very end of it is one of my favorite bits in the whole song. He goes, cold beer, hot lights, my sweet romantic teenage nights. Like that dozen syllables is just packed full of exactly how he wants you to picture that. And then he launches into what is probably my favorite clarinet solo anywhere. Yeah, Not that yeah. there are too many to choose from, but that's a good one. It happens right in between cold beer, hot lights and Brenda and Eddie. First off, can we talk about how crappy their friends are? Yeah. I mean, imagine if I came to you or if you came to me and we're like, hey, I just got engaged. I was like, you can't get engaged. You're way too lazy. And that person is too poor to marry you. Imagine if that was my response to you telling me you were engaged. It's not an encouraging one. No. I like how he primes you into that state of mind of almost a youthful innocence with we never knew we could want more than that out of life. That takes you straight back to the days where prom and high school and relationship drama like that's your whole world. And then they do the bridge. They do. They live for a while in a very nice style. It's always the same in the end. Do you remember Sears? He talks for a minute about <laughs> Sears. I haven't been to a Sears in ages. Wait, we should we should franchise a Sears. No, that's a bad idea. <laughs> We talked about how Just The Way You Are doesn't feel dated at all. And this song doesn't accept Sears. Yeah, yeah, poor Sears. But then they do the whole there we were waving Brenda and Eddie goodbye after the wedding, right? And then he brings that back, waving goodbye as he finishes up their story after the divorce. I think at the wedding, they're waving goodbye to Brenda and Eddie as they drive away into their marriage. And then the second waving goodbye is them saying au revoir to Brenda and Eddie, the couple. Right, right. To them lamenting that relationship splitting up because he does the whole he goes can't tell you more because i told you already which is interesting (laughs) i wrote what a dip in quality on that line straight filler there i think he just needed an extra line there i love that slowdown at the end back from the brenda and eddie bit into the original tempo it's so seamless and what he was going for he talked about in some interviews was he's going for a time travel type feeling returning to the present and it hits with that saxophone is the instrument he uses to do that Yeah, it feels very like time travel yep that's exactly what it is 
Um, next song, though, was Vienna. Yeah, track five, Vienna. And this one is interesting because it's not the greatest hits type radio single. No, it wasn't. It uses a lot of different chords. They're still structured in a in a verse-chorus type format, but the chords themselves are unique. And in a musical theory sense, that's kind of what puts this song a cut above. This song nails the instrumentation, like the complexities and the just the way he goes about the music in this song. Yeah, and you know our good old pal, the accordion, does make a return. <laughs> it shows back up. Yep. It's also got a very good message to it. Again, it's it, the message of slowing down and enjoying life. Being sure to enjoy your life as you're living it and not expect it all to come later. Yeah. The line, only fools are satisfied. That's a raw line. Like, that hits, I think, everyone that's a youth. Yeah, this song really anchors this back to the core themes of dreams and ambitions and working hard and patience and persistence. I wrote that it's the same kind of thing we saw in Moving Out, but from a radically different perspective. Like, Moving Out is Anthony's song. This song feels a lot more like something Mama Leone would say. Slow down, move out to the country, take a deep breath. Do you know why that is? Saying that this is something Mama Leone would say is spot on. Because this is something his dad actually said to him. Oh, yeah. Another personal experience song. Uh-huh. So, like, the beginnings of your verses, slow down, you crazy child. Those are lines taken from conversations he had with his dad, who lives in Vienna. Smart, yeah. His dad was absent from his life from the time he was, like, 8, 9, 10, around there until he was in his 20s. He had to go track him down and found him living in Vienna. The part where it says, but then if you're so smart, tell me why you were still so afraid is supposed to be in reference to when he was talking to was about becoming a musician and how he was afraid he was going to fail. And he says, well, if you think you're good enough, why are you worried? So this entire song is supposed to kind of be about conversations he had with his dad. Yeah, and he's kind of self-proclaimed this as one of his personal favorites. Uh, it's a good choice. Good choice, Billy Joel. If you're listening to this, I approve of your favorite song. Great. I'm sure he's happy with that stamp of approval from <laughs> us. And then you go from this kind of... I don't want to use the word somber, but you go from this song into Only the Good Die Young. No, no, hold on. Which is a... Do you want to... I was just... Do you want to talk about Only the Good Die Young? I don't want to start a war between us and the Catholic Church. Oh, oh gosh. I didn't think about that. I think we could talk about it. We could talk about it. Let's tread lightly. If Billy Joel won a war, I'm sure we can. Maybe he'll support us in the war. Come to our aid. Yeah. <laughs> But it's what a crazy, what a crazy concept for a song. I know, right? It's a very mature topic, but yet like disguised with this fun beat. If you haven't heard the song and have no idea what it's about, it's pretty much Billy Joel trying to get with a church girl. Yeah, it's a personal story about a girl that he knew when he was younger. Now, the first thing I want to point out before we even talk about anything the song actually is, is what it almost was. Billy Joel, he wanted to do this song as a reggae song. Can you imagine that? I'm now trying to think of reggae songs I know. It's not, like, the farthest away from a reggae song. No, it's it seems possible. See, he wanted to do it in reggae, and his drummer, he suggested that they change it to what it is now, which is called a delayed backbeat. Yeah, yes, I knew that! I knew that! I actually even had in here that I loved how the backbeat punctuated the chorus lines. Well, perfect, yeah. Look at me knowing music terms. Everyone out there who thought I was just here for the good looks, I'm not here for that either. Yeah, he's but. not here for the good looks. <laughs> But he's also not here for most of the musical things. You know, 
This song is just such a classic. I think it's the easiest song just to pick up on this record. You know, you listen to it once and you've got it. It's a straight up rock and roll song. Yeah, it's, just, it's a wild song and it's a catchy song. It's a great song. Now, I love the drum beat. I love the rocking guitar on this one. And the bass It's kind of twofold purpose is to hold everything together and also really drive the song forward. And it's a good twist on the classic phrase, uh, why bust the good die young? You know, that's, a, that's everybody's heard that. And so this is a really funny take on that phrase and interesting application of it at least yeah to say the least there's a lot of clever lines in here like they never told you the price that you'll pay for things that you might have done i think is a great line because he's implying that the price for things that you might have done is regret yeah they've definitely told you the price you pay for the things you do you're only getting one side of the conversation mm-hmm. the other thing that is cool about this song is just a one-line chorus it's just that one line repeated that's not a very easy thing to pull off yeah but he does it pretty expertly right here and I, I love the way that he uses what I call musical blank space on this one. The instruments will hit and they'll wait a beat. On parts like, you got a nice white dress and a party on your confirmation. Like, he uses that empty space really, really effectively to draw your attention right to the lyrics and to keep that bouncy backbeat from getting too overbearing. And you can't talk about this song without mentioning the line, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Man. It's the whole point of the song that he makes just summed up in this really snarky jab at religion yeah yeah i put c also does your mother ever say a prayer for me yeah that's (laughs) another instance where he's just like really giving a middle finger to the catholic church yeah yeah you know how earlier i said that i kind of took his side that why was the catholic church so mad maybe i get why they were yeah he, he was a little bit aggressive right here just a little yeah just a little it's a really happy critique about the reasons why you should live your life to the fullest. Hopefully this is my last time using the word, but there's an interesting juxtaposition between this and the next song. Yes, the next song is track seven, She's Always a Woman. I think it's probably the simplest song from a production standpoint. It's just a piano and a guitar, some really simple accents, and it's in 6-8 time, so it's kind of got that waltzy beat to it. Which is a great time. Yeah, it is. I love 6-8. And this is another one that he's super famous for, you know? This is one of his more popular tracks. With the last song, Only the Good Die Young, and then this song being about being madly in love with someone who many others find hard to love. It's a, Again, it's an interesting order to the songs on the album. Yeah. This is another great place where he really plays into that stranger motif of you know her as this woman, I know her as this other woman. Like, you know, it's this whole different side of her that I see that you don't. Yeah, you think she can be mean at times and you think that she's too independent and blah, 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 blah. But to me, she's this perfect woman. Right. He, he straight up says she only reveals what she wants you to see. That's a pretty direct yeah. taken from the stranger. Unfortunately, this song also has been soured by the divorce because this was also supposed to be about his then wife yeah this is another one that he took out of his concert rotation for a long time and then when he put it back he would sometimes end this song by singing oh the most she will do is throw shadows at you but she's always a woman to me and then we got a divorce (laughs) he would sing it at the end of the lyrics which is just hilarious what a funny gag to add to your live shows Mm -hmm. and actually that that last line the most she'll do is throw shadows at you reminded me a lot of the cover art of the heavy lengthy shadows that are stretching across there that's a good point 
think of that. And I also like the line where she promises more than the Garden of Eden. It feels like a callback to only the good die young. It's more of that religious imagery that he uses. One thing that She's Always a Woman does really well is it makes good use of the suspended chord. That's pretty much the whole gist of the verse. It hangs tight to a suspended chord, and that's how he creates all of his tension. Interesting. That's a pretty good overview i think of she's always a woman so that brings us on to the next track get it right the first time this is the first song that's led in with only the beat i love those drums at the beginning of it yeah yeah oh no this was my least favorite song on the album yeah i think that's a fair choice and i think i agree with you it's not a bad song it's just meh there's nothing special yeah it's another very straightforward song it's almost in the vein of Brenda and Eddie, where he tells the story in very clear detail, but there's just not as much of a story to tell. But it's not as engaging. Yeah. You know, Brenda and Eddie are characters. They're fleshed out, and you've got the perspective of all their friends. This isn't that. This is just, you know, you looking through the eyes of a young, hopeful romantic that's just hoping to impress a woman. And I don't know if I love the way that he holds the end of each phrase. I don't believe in first impressions... It's not my favorite. I agree. I don't know what I would change it to. Yeah. I just think the whole song, like I said, is just meh compared to everything else on the album. It's a milk toast kind of song. It feels lacking. Yeah. But he also does so much cool stuff with inverted chords. A lot of strange bass notes, and they help a lot with the big builds into the choruses. Interesting. And, okay, I know we talked about him maybe getting lazy on the lyrics with can't tell you more because I told you already, but he's got like several solid la 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 sections in this song. I like the instruments that are echoing behind him, but he couldn't think of any words to put there. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. This is a real uh, deep cut kind of a track. It's just lower quality Billy Joel. But luckily he saves it for the final track. Everybody Has a Dream is just another one of those pretty songs. Everybody Has a Dream is essentially Billy Joel does gospel music. It's such a departure from anything he's done up until this point. Yeah. Nothing quite scratches the same itch that this song hits. It sums up all the thematic elements of the album with a nice bow. It really does. You know, this everybody has a dream idea. That's every character on this album has their dream. Some of them get it. Some of them don't. Everybody's working towards it. The second verse brings a little bit more of that patent cynicism. There's a bit where he says, I search everywhere for some new inspiration, but it's more than cold reality can give. His whole shtick here has been kind of this observation on cold reality and how hard life can be. You should bottle and sell that cynicism. Can you imagine you buy a bottle of Billy Joel cynicism? If I bought a bottle of Billy Joel cynicism, I'd find a million things wrong with it and never get it again. Just imagine you open it up and it's just, the air just all rushes out. It's like compressed air rushes out and then you can just hear Billy Joel say something cynical. It's like fortune cookies, but with cynical Billy Joel. <laughs> I think it'd be a terrible product. <laughs> This is another song where I think he sings it really well. He's got a really nice vibrato, and it's his voice. He just gives it a different tonal quality than he really has anywhere else. Oh, it's so pretty. I love it. It also has that interesting ending to it with the reprisal of The Stranger. At the end of this song, he brings The Stranger back for a last hoorah. And I think this, if you weren't thinking that the record was cohesive already, this is what is going to do it for you. And this isn't the only record that Billy Joel will go on to release where he does this. It also happens on the Nylon Curtain with Allentown. I want to know, is that only on the record version? Or was Everybody Has a Dream released as a single as well? And is that ending included in it? Uh, I don't know for sure whether Everybody Has a Dream was released as a single. But if it was, I'm sure they could have taken it off. People release radio singles all the time. Sometimes to get rid of curse words. Sometimes 
length to make songs shorter. And that's the thing they did to Billy Joel a lot. They edited his songs down for length and for content. And he complains about it in some of his earlier songs. The Entertainer specifically, he talks about how they had to cut Piano Man down to make it fit into a radio slot. I know, and the full version's so good. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Yeah. Everyone listening, there's a nice spreadsheet that James has put together that tracks all of his scores for every album he's ever ranked. There's tons of them on there, and it has a detailed breakdown of all the scores. Yeah, and I rank all of these things in four different weighted categories. I take care of the music, the lyrics. Those are the top two ranked categories. I think they're the most vital to the album as a whole. Then I talk about the the music and the production, and then the last category is just for the overall vibe, which kind of can cover the cohesiveness of the songs, the catchiness of them, the historical significance of the album, stuff like that. It's just kind of a catch-all for all the important things that maybe the other categories don't address. So that's how I rank everything. Let's start with music. We've talked so much about the suspended chords, the inverted shapes, the funky bass, a lot of really interesting decisions about melody, and and I think it's all catchy. Everything on this record, for the most part, works. There's no point where I'm like, oh, that was a bad decision. So for me, I gave the music a 95, a pretty whopping big score, but I think it's deserved. 95. And these are all out of 100, correct? Yeah, out of 100. Lyrics, I know we've praised a lot of the lyrics on this album, and there are some of them that I just can't get over. There are a handful that just drag behind. Almost everything in Get It Right the First Time is okay. (laughs) The Stranger, like I talked about, just kind of fell flat for me a little bit. And then there are isolated incidents Mm. in the other songs. So for me, I had to drop the lyrics down to an 89. Still very respectable. Billy Joel does a lot of legwork with a few words, and that's super impressive. Yeah. In terms of instruments and production, like I said, a lot of unique instruments. I think everything is well and good. There are some moments in the production where it just doesn't hold up for me. Like at the beginning of Just the Way You Are, the synth comes in a little too strong. Sometimes things are a little too crisp that I wish were a little more mellow or in the background. I decided to give instruments and production an 86. That's still very high. And in terms of the overall vibe, like we talked about, the cover art is fantastic. All of the songs fit together so well. They're all so strongly tied to that central theme. I mean, there are a lot of musical differences to everything, but like the saxophone solos, the clarinets, that's one thing that was like a thread, almost, that kept a lot of these songs connected. So I decided to give Vibe a 90. Those are my categorical scores. And so due to all of our budget being tied up in the writing department, I had to go out and find us a crackpot team to be our math department. And by crackpot team, I mean I went to the local park and rounded up a group of squirrels and put fancy little lab coats and glasses on them. And they're our math department. You have a math department bit? According to them, that gives you a 92.3 weighted final score. Does that sound about right? How'd they do? It does. You, your squirrels are pretty on the money. It's a very good record. It's easily in my top 50. That's an, that's an A. It is an A, by all accounts. <laughs> now, what about you? My score is much simpler. I listen to it, and I ask my ears how good it sounded, and they give me a number out of 10, and that's my score. And I think I've settled on a 9 out of 10 for this album. Ooh, a 9 out of 10. That is almost the highest honor you can bestow. Yeah, I really like Billy Joel. I didn't have as many lyrical snags as you did. Really, it was just... if I'd almost give it a perfect score if it wasn't for uh, Get It Right the First Time. 
that that's really what drags it down to the nine. That is the one that he did not get right. Yeah, you're right. But oh, I'm supposed to give a unit though, right? You want units. Yeah, you got to give it a unit because I give it points and you just, again, you just gave it a nine out of 10 what? Oh uh, yeah. A nine out of 10 means nothing. It's got it's to be something. It's got to have a, some scale. Nine out of 10 what? Um, I'm going to give it nine Cadillac X out of 10 <laughs> uh, is what I think I'm going to give this one. Are you giving it nine Cadillac X or a cattle with nine acts? I think I think this was good enough. It deserves the full nine Cadillac That's pretty good. So that's like what? If there's nine acts on every Cadillac and there's nine Cadillac 81 acts. You give it 81 acts. Yeah, 81 acts. Hey, that's a pretty good score. If you can't rate with a broken back, at least you can polish the fenders. Oh, gosh. My only final notes uh, outside that score is just that overall, this is a well put together album. And Billy Joel is definitely one of my favorite artists. So he's got, this is going to be hard to beat. It was a great first episode for me. Well, good. I'm glad you liked him. I'm glad that I could give you an artist that you were familiar with. And like, let you experience this album as one singular work for the first time. Yeah. I promise we'll get you into some more artists you don't know in the coming weeks. And I am super excited to hear your take on some of those. Yeah. But yeah, Billy Joel seemed like the right place to start for a first record. You know, a lot of people probably know one or some of these songs already. And it just felt like a good spot to jump in. If you made it this far, be sure to follow it, like it on all the different platforms. You know, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, Apple, YouTube. YouTube. you know all the classics we got them all all of them our twitter is at spin it pod our instagram is at spin it pod official everything is linked down in the description so go take a look say hi give us a follow and recommend us some albums to listen to because we would love to listen to everything again i don't know how we're going to end this episode our writing department has failed us for a second episode in a row we gave them plenty of time between the test episode and now to come up with a catchphrase and they just didn't yeah i know what was the catchphrase you came up with last week i guess we'll just we'll have to reuse it until they come up with something better our temporary catchphrase which i will bid you adieu with now is keep spinning till next time folks yep keep spinning oh we didn't give any nuggets of teas for the next episode <laughs>